1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? I'd like to tell you about the quiet man. He's John Wayne in a picture you'll soon be cheering. It's the story of Sean Thornton, a right-intended man who came from America to forget his past in Innisfree. There he met a fiery red-headed lass, and the village marriage broker went to work. That's a pretty bonnet you have on. Bonnet? Don't you be talking to me about bonnets. After leaving mine stuck up there like a... Easy now. Have the good manners not to hit the man until he's your husband, and until he'll hit you back. Then her bully of a brother, Red Will Danaher, refused to pay her rightful dowry. There'll be no locks or bolts between us, Mary-Kate, except those in your own mercenary little heart. Mary-Kate left him to go to Dublin, but he caught her at the station and brought her back with the whole town watching him do it. I'll pay you. Never! Then the fight was on. A fight they're still talking about in Innisfree. It's a wonderful picture. The finest ever brought to the screen by John Ford. And he's won three Academy Awards. His direction makes unforgettable the performances of John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Barry Fitzgerald, and Victor McLaughlin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and today I have reunited with a long-lost old friend, Mr. Sean Whalen from the Raging Bullets Network. Uh, I was going to say network, but show. How you doing, Sean? I am thrilled to be here, and, and you're right. It's been so long since you and I have had a chance to really talk like this, but uh, um, it's great to reconnect with you and to have this opportunity to talk about uh, a, a film that uh, I'm really excited to chat about. You know, I, I'm going to give just a little bit of history, a little bit of our history that you don't even know about, uh, because years ago when I got my first iPod, 
uh, I got it for the purpose of listening to music. And then someone clued me in that there were these things called podcasts. And I was totally oblivious to it. You were already involved in this before I was even knew podcasts existed. Uh, and I started looking for comic book podcasts because that's, you know, one of my passions. And I found Raging Bullets. And I started listening to it. And I'll tell you, for the first while, I don't know how many episodes I listened to, but for the first couple that I listened to, I actually thought you were an employee of DC Comics doing this, like, at their behest. <laughs> and <laughs> and one, one, of, one of the first shows that I can remember listening to was when you did the, uh, the, the Superman 2 Donner Cut episode. So that's quite a while ago, I'd say. That's one of your earlier ones. It, it's a we we just crossed uh, in March 15 years of podcasting wow. and uh, we we crossed over 600 shows this summer um, was was really excited for both of those landmarks I, it amazes me you and I were talking uh, before we started recording about how long it's been since you and I have uh, had a chance to podcast together. And uh, I think we traced it back to at least like eight years ago, which um, it blows my mind how fast time flies because it does not seem like that long. No, it's, um, it's so easy to lose touch and lose track of people and just kind of move, you know, keep moving. But, but it, it's it's so great that podcasting, which is this medium where we're listening to each other, has led to these long lasting friendships. Because, I mean, for you and I, we have a long lasting friendship here out, out of out of this medium that has connected us. And I think that's really been the thrilling thing in, in this culture of uh, growing friendships based around things that we all truly enjoy. Yeah. And I could say, I couldn't give you definitively when or what I, what the, what it was about, but I could tell you with pretty good confidence that early on in my listening, uh, before I even had any thought that I would do podcasting on my own, uh, I'm pretty sure I reached out to you by email to tell you I was enjoying the show, and then little by little we made contact, and then the next thing you know, Facebook friends, and then we have real conversations, and then you appear to, uh, I believe if my memory is correct, it's either two or three episodes uh, of Back to the Bins that you appeared on over the years, so people could seek those out, and uh, I guarantee you they were good, and what I did, if my memory is accurate, and usually it is, but I'm getting old, uh, if my memory is accurate, I think I gave Sean the opportunity to talk about things that weren't DC for yep. a rare occasion, since since his show is you know all DC. And that's and that's the fun of being able to do these kind of episodes, to be able to cross over and, and jump on other people's podcasts and have an opportunity to talk about things that we love that we don't always get to talk about on our own shows. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Um, like I said, I'm very glad. I was, I'm glad we were able to to reconnect and that uh, I reached out to you. And as I was saying before we started to record, uh, once we did start talking about it, you mentioned a few movies and the one we're covering today, which is 1952's The Quiet Man, uh, was on the list of movies that you gave me as possibilities to cover. And as as I told you immediately, that just makes my antenna going up that I have another friend who likes older movies because. Uh, a lot of the people who are movie lovers are more interested in recent movies, and even though they might be willing to watch something older, they don't have the background to, to, to discuss them the same way. Now, I'll give you just my general background, and then I'll talk a little bit about this movie in particular. But uh, 
years ago when I had a lot more free time in my life and when we were still in the age of VCRs, uh, uh, you know, the VCR, the, the video rental stores were, you know, $5 to rent something for a night, and then they went down to a dollar a night. And that's when I really allowed my love of movies to go nuts. And what I would do is I would just pick an artist or, or an, an actor or an actress or a director and just say, I'm, I'm going to focus on this person for a while. So somebody like John Wayne in this movie, uh, I would go seven, eight days in a row where I'd rent a John Wayne movie, I'd bring it back the next day, I'd take another John Wayne movie. And that's, I got a lot of my background that way besides having taken film classes and just always loving film. Uh, but I have, you know, I've seen a, a quite a few John Wayne movies, put it that way. This movie in particular, my recollection is uh, that around... St. Patrick's Day every year, they would show this movie on Channel 11, WPIX in New York, and I would see the commercial for it, and to be totally honest, I thought the commercial made it look very stiff and unoriginal, and I, didn't, I never was all that intrigued by it. By the time I got to high school, being the full, full-blooded Italian, uh, you know, of full-blooded Italian descent... Uh, I didn't really have the Irish background, but then in high school, most of the people in the crowd I hung out with were Irish, and we would go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade every year, and we would do stuff. So they got me to sit down and watch this movie, and I have to tell you, I fell in love with it the first time I sat down and watched it, and it's been a staple in my viewing ever since. Now, that's my background, and I'm curious to know what your background is, Sean. So I can trace it back to uh, 88, 89. This is my senior year in high school. Um, I had to get for uh, college credit, I had to take an arts class, and I didn't have any artistic talent. I always love art, <laughs> but I don't have, you can't draw worth anything. And um, music, I didn't have any musical background. So as a college credit class, you could take an art appreciation class, and the second half of the semester was film. And I'm like, well, okay, the film part, sound, I'm a film fan, sounds great. Uh, I had no idea how much I would love this class because it introduced me to silent black and white films straight on through till about the early 70s that they were hitting. And uh, the, the great part about that was we hit a period where we were going over some of the movies of John Ford and John Wayne together, and one of them happened to be The Quiet Man. And when I watched this movie, it just hit me. It just was a movie that I just really was mesmerized by. And uh, I've, you know, over the years, multiple rewatchings of this film, but it was really through the film class. If I hadn't taken that film class, I don't know that we'd be having this conversation. I wouldn't have suggested it because it wouldn't have been something that I was exposed to back in 89 uh, because of that. And I, I had friends who I was lucky enough, we, we ended up watching films together. We would do like a Sunday night movie night where we'd get together and we'd do a rental very much like you're talking about, go to the video store and grab something. This was one we ended up grabbing and watching together. But uh, this, it's, that was an important era for me. That film class really broadened my horizons on not just being a fan of current movies, but also being a fan of classics that um, were before my time that were films that uh, really should be on my radar. I, I had a similar experience that, you know, my first film class was in high school and the teacher really did broaden. 
I don't know my broaden, about broadening my horizons because I was always open to seeing new movies, but I think he opened my eyes a little bit more to seeing the subtleties of movies, the, you know, in the direction, how, how there'd be like a message in the way people were situated and things like that, which I, was always subliminal for me in, in the, before that, and I never actually was aware of it. Uh, he focused primarily on Alfred Hitchcock and Orson Welles movies. Uh, there was very little else that he did beyond those. And so, you know, I, I kind of matured in my movies thinking those were the two great masters, and they are or were great masters. But I didn't realize how other filmmakers who would make movies that were more lighthearted, such as The Quiet Man, were equally adept in their own way. Uh, and as I was watching this, I started noticing little little touches with the way people were situated and, and things like that, which would be you know the same thing that Hitchcock would do and the same thing that, that Orson Welles would do. I mean, John Ford truly was a master. Uh, and when you see his, his you know, filmography, you, you realize how many great movies he made and how he was you know, a pioneer in a lot of the, what went on. Uh, and this movie was a passion project for him. Uh, I, I've recently kind of become aware of how, how he, you know, really had to push to make this movie. And the studios were not really all that willing to do it. Uh, they were afraid of, you know, the, the politics of Ireland becoming a problem with the movie. So even back then, we have some of this, some similar issues to, to things we deal with now that we think are unique to the current day and age. Uh, what I they learned... Sure. Go ahead, Sean. They had to do a Western in order to get this film made. Like, the studio that they did it with, because I'm with you. I, that's The story behind this is fascinating. That Because I look at this movie, I'm like, why wouldn't you make this movie? Well, back then, they wouldn't have the luxury of knowing what the end product was going to be. So uh, they had they, the agreement was that they would make a Western with this studio in order to get this movie made. <laughs> Yeah, they, they. It was actually from what the way I heard it now is that John Wayne actually went to the studio because he had the relationship with uh, I think it's Republic Pictures if I remember right, uh, and you know he had to try and sell them on it, and ultimately uh, they said yeah okay you know we'll do this if you do uh, what turned out to be one of the three in what they call his uh, Fort Apache trilogy, uh, John Wayne. Uh, he, which he did with Victor McLaughlin. Uh, there was she wore a yellow ribbon. Uh, I, also, I'm drawing a blank on the one that was actually the the movie that they did for this. There was Fort Apache. There was she wore a yellow ribbon, and then there was a third one that was actually the movie that uh, they made in exchange for being able to make this one. And I'm looking, trying to see quickly, look for John John Wayne's filmography because I can't believe that I'm drawing a blank on it. Anyway, I, of, of the three, it was actually the least, in my opinion. Oh, and there's Maureen uh, O'Hara is also in that one too, in the, in those that trilogy. It's Rio Grande. Rio Grande. Thank you. I, I can't believe that I that I couldn't remember that. Uh, and it's funny because seeing those movies were where I actually developed my fanhood for Victor McLaughlin. I hadn't realized how good he was, and he really has. You know, he, he has quite an acting style. I mean, he's a little blustery in the way he presents it. But if you see, there are some subtleties, too, to the way he, he acts. I, I still have yet to see uh, his performance that won him the Academy Award in The Informer, which is one that's been on my to-watch list forever. Great movie. It's uh, that's it's 
that might be one some point in time we maybe discuss. <laughs> yeah. I, I I mainly know him from from the John Wayne films that he was in and Gunga Din. But uh, you know this this is I I just can't give enough positives about this. This was actually a story I believe in the Saturday Evening Post uh, that that they said uh, John Ford bought the rights to it for ten dollars, and then eventually the studio paid more money to uh, I guess to compensate. But but the initial the initial uh, movie rights went for ten dollars, and then he had him for years, uh, just as as a, I guess as a quick way of background. If you haven't seen this movie, it is essentially uh, a remake or a retelling or a variation on uh, the Taming of the Shrew. It's funny you were talking earlier about Victor McLaughlin, and it just led me to think about uh, the cast in general. Because it's very easy to talk about this film and, and focus on John Ford and John Wayne and then, of course, Maureen O'Hara. But one of the things that I think is the strength of this film is absolutely them. But, you know, Victor McLaughlin, the entire cast, this oh, yeah. really I mean, it's a stacked cast. And I don't think this film works unless you like everybody. I think there's there is a cast here that really sets the stage for this town of Innisfree. And if you don't like them. It the film falls apart because that it, it, there's an atmosphere to this that is generated by everybody that sets apart this place and, and makes it feel like because industry doesn't even exist. <laughs> yes, but but it is it is it is based on John Ford's even though it's it's the story that he didn't write he based the location on his own history. The the uh, what's the the house that John Wayne buys White of Morn is actually based on the house that that John Ford was was born in. You get that passion too from the story, just because you know you've got Sean Thornton who is like you've got to believe very early on that this guy has a has a love for this place that would draw him back, and. That clearly comes across in the writing, because John Ford's actually a writer in this, and I didn't realize that. Um, it was he was an uncredited contributing writer um, as a part of this, and and to to your point, it's clear that his background is playing um, a, a strong part of this, and uh, it, it's a strong screenplay. Oh, absolutely, and I, I agree with, with your point that you have to like pretty much all of the characters, including Victor McLaughlin, who is the antagonist in the movie. Uh, you know, they, they they give him some lighthearted moments to keep you from ever truly disliking him too much. And then, you know, they they show, you know, that underneath it all, he's still, you know, kind of, I wouldn't go as far as to say heart of gold, but that, you know, he's, he's not a bad guy underneath uh, when all is said and done. Uh, but I think that the two supporting characters, because I think you could look at Wayne O'Hara and McLaughlin as the three primary characters. Yep. The two supporting characters that I think were absolutely necessary that you had a strong feeling for are, are Barry Fitzgerald mm-hmm. and Ward Bond. Ward Bond less because of what he's doing in the film itself and more because he's the narrator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so you have to kind of, you know, you have to have a, feel a kinship towards him as he's telling the story. Uh, I, I would say, you know, I, I'm ju- I know I'm jumping around a little bit here. The only thing in this movie that I thought fell a little short was 
the flashback of why John Wayne, Sean Thornton, does not want to fight. Because when, when they showed the flashback, ultimately, and I wanted to give like a quick background, he's an American who comes to Ireland to go back to his, his family home, which he buys, and he wants to live there and live out his life and, and uh, you know, raise a family. And the reason he's leaving the United States is he had been working, he had been a boxer, and he accidentally uh, killed somebody in the ring. And the guy who he killed had a family and was not a bad person. And he had a great deal of guilt over it and never wanted to fight again. So as the tensions rise in this movie, he's constantly trying to pull back and not get involved in fighting until finally, uh, you know, he, he just feels he has no choice. And a lot of that has to do with the cultural clash between his values and the values of the people of the of the town of Innisfree, uh, you know, his, his Mary Kate, his betrothed and ultimately his wife feels very, very strongly that her own personal value comes from her property and her, uh, you know, the money that she should be bringing into this this marriage. And then her brother, who is Victor McLaughlin, won't give that up. And she is ashamed because Sean Thornton won't fight for her. And she, she's viewing him as a coward. And it almost makes me feel like singing Coward of the County by Kenny Rogers as I'm going through it. Uh, but it, it, it's, you know, it, it, there's a lot going on there for a, for, for a lighthearted movie. You mentioned that flashback scene, and I agree with you. It is, it's underwhelming. And it's if there was one mark of this film that I would say, it's really, it's not an it's weird to say that it's not an important part of the film, but it's not treated as such other than that. It, it's, it's a catalyst. It's a catalyst that explains why he's come back to this place to find his roots, to reinvent himself, to like live a simpler life, um, to go back to maybe some memories that were pleasant in his life. You know, we all look for comfort food, right? For him, this, these memories of his childhood, Go harken back to a time of safety, a time of happiness. Um, even when he first meets up with Michelino Flynn, you know, there's this idea of I remember you from when I was a little kid, and you know, you were when when you know you remember me, and they have that like touching moment where it's like, oh, I remember you, little Sean Thornton, and all that, um, it, which is such a great moment. But that sequence where we see that flashback that John Wayne, I thought, did a good job of showing just how traumatizing it was for him, but it really was this like sequence that was, it felt like it almost felt like it was quickly produced um, yes. just for the purpose of like getting it in to set that up um, because it has to explain why this, you don't want to feel that he's a coward. So you need to believe there is something truly there that is keeping him from fighting because at a certain point in time, even though he's doing this romantic piece of I love you for you, and he means it, he really does mean it, there comes a point where it's like, well, yeah, but how many times can you be ridiculed and all of this before you're going to step up, and, and you know, at, at, especially at this time, and be a man, so to speak? And that served that purpose, but boy, it, I, I'm with you. It, it, watching it back again, I was like, wow, that was kind of under that part was... That is the only part that I feel of the film that is a little underwhelming. I, th I think it would have been more 
and and again, it's the only weakness in the whole movie, as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't, I hate to harp on the one tiny little thing, and it isn't, a, it's far from a fatal flaw. Uh, but I feel like it might have been more effective to just have him confide in somebody, in a, in a you know in a strong way to explain, which he does. He does talk about it at one point, but I felt like that scene of him talking about it is more effective than the scene in the boxing ring that they show as a flashback. Yep. The, 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 the boxing ring. And then <laughs> it's, I'm just thinking about it in the, in the flashback, you know, the, they show John Wayne and, you know, in his boxer trunks with the gloves on and, you know, his, he, he's all clearly upset. And then they show the other guy on the floor. Uh, and then they just, they like throw a towel over his face. To yep. show that he died. It's like, what utter disregard for the man's corpse. <laughs> and for people, if you're listening to this and you're like, because sometimes I do this too, where you listen to a podcast first to get an idea if this is something you want to see or join into. The sequence we're talking about is such a small part of the film. And I actually would make an argument that the stronger build to his reasoning is his interactions, the teasing interactions with him and Reverend Playfair. Where you yes. get the idea what happened in his past. And Arthur Shields, who played Reverend Playfair, played a good role in this because you got to care about him, too. Um, but his kind of being a confidant of Sean Thornton in this because he knew him. He knew that he was Trooper Thorne. He knew that, that Thor, you know, that he was he was this former boxer, but he kept it to himself. He was trying to place where he knew him from and caught on and respected the wishes of keeping the secret. And you, I think we, I felt better in the film when I was a co-conspirator than necessarily with the reveal. I, I agree. That's, that's a very good point. That, that, that character, while seemingly a very minor character in the movie, serves an essential purpose. And that, to me, that's a sign of, of really good writing, that you can, you can do that with a character, and, and good acting as well. Uh, so, you know, that that does it. And, you know, it's funny, you know, I talked about how, you know, you're getting his motivations at the beginning of the movie when he's like looking over the land and everything. Uh, they have his mother's voice talking to him about Ireland as a, as a young man. Uh, and I thought that was very effective to show why it had been his dream to go back here and live out his life here. And it's, one of the things that I think the film does very well is capture the cinematography of the place because it's it's a very beautiful film. So you want to, like, it's homey. You want to be there. You care about these characters. As they're even describing how to get to these places, it's endearing that, like, it's almost a maze to get there. You know, there's that road up there, but you don't want to go that way. You want to go this way. <laughs> I love that. Are you familiar with this road? Well, don't go there. <laughs> and then even the argument of like, well, if he knew how to get to that town, why would he need to know how to get to Innisfree? Because he has to pass through Innisfree to get there. <laughs> yeah. was, no, no, every, so everybody on, in this movie who has a speaking line is a character. Yes. And, and, and they I give him. They make most of them very eccentric, but they're, they're just so much fun. And I feel like that was part of the film. There's this, there's the people, but then there's also even the train station. When you see it, it's, it's beautifully shot. The town itself as they're making their way through is beautifully shot. 
uh, at a time where, you know, we're very used to technology being able to bring to life things that before were very limited, um, they were really able to use um, very creatively the artistry of film to make this place come to life and, and it's various buildings and things that you just wanted. I wanted to walk through there with them. And I think that's really critical because you've got to believe that Innisfree is a place that you would want to go and hang out. You'd want to go into little shops. You'd want to stop by and visit the neighbors there and see as much of it as you possibly can. Uh, this is a place where if I could vacation in this place, I would want to see all the sites and it's that's important in a film like this because you got to believe that there's a reason why this guy would care about this place enough to be there, uh, to have that kind of conviction and to be a part of this community. And I, I love films like this where the cast, the the cast is so well done. Well, I, I think Ireland is a character in this movie. Yes. Oh, you yes. know, it, it, is, it is clearly a love letter to Ireland, uh, and the cinematography is absolutely beautiful, as you mentioned. Uh, it, it, you know, I mean, this this was John Ford's dream project to make this movie, and one of the things uh, that they basically said that I, I've recently heard is that he refused to make it unless it was in Technicolor. He, you know, he he absolutely wanted to make this movie but he was not going to make it in black and white and lose that the beauty of the lush land uh this movie did win the academy award for cinematography and just looking quickly winston hawk was the uh the cinematographer and you may not know him by name but he was he worked with john ford on three godfathers he was on she wore a yellow ribbon which we mentioned earlier which is actually another beautiful movie by the way uh and uh actually Oh no, okay. I'm, I'm sure I saw the word Braveheart in here, and I was thinking this guy couldn't possibly have worked on that. No, but th- that was John Toll that did that, and they just mentioned that he's Hawks equal as far as Academy Awards. But he also did the uh, cinematography for Mr. Roberts and The Searchers, which I think are pretty well known as being you know beautiful movies when you watch them. So this 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 was a very talented cinematographer. Uh, John Ford clearly had a, was on a mission to show how beautiful this land was. And uh, I, I don't even know if real life could hold up to how great it looked in this movie. You know, you, it was funny you mentioned Technicolor before, and I, I don't want to gloss over that. And I, I think you were hitting on something that I think is so important because I love modern films. So please, when I'm referencing how great classic films are, I don't want anyone to think that I don't love modern film. I love film through all eras. But I think there's something special about the era when Technicolor was at its height. And I think when you go back and watch a film that's been remastered that was in Technicolor and you compare it to today's films, there's something different. There's a unique visual quality to it that ha- can't be replicated. And it's it, it, it's strange thing to say nowadays with all the technology that we have, but there's something art. There's an artistry to the use of Technicolor. And you're right, the, the fight for Technicolor this. Could you imagine this movie in black and white? I'm say, it would still be a great movie, but there would be something lost without that Technicolor in this because it, there's something about the way it captures colors that is unique to Technicolor that you don't see in, in film that hasn't been shot that way. No, I, I totally agree with you that it's rare that you see a movie nowadays where it, it, it has that same... 
I, I don't even know how to describe it, but that same beauty and depth to it of, of the colors uh, that you used to see back then. Uh, you know, occasionally you might, but it's, I, I think it's almost lost. It's almost lost because everything's in color now and, and, you know, it's just not special. But there was, I think, an effort to show that beauty back then. You know, I think, I think there was kind of a thought process of we're one of the few movies they're letting us make in the, with this process. So we have to show them, we have to earn that, you know, that, that privilege. And and I think you know there there was just a, a a love that was presented in it, and like you said, it's not the only thing in the movie, because it would still be great. But this movie is a marriage of solid direction, and and I'm just saying solid, but I really want to put the word great in for everything. Solid direction, solid acting, solid cinematography, a solid score, and a solid script. And we're going to talk more about some of those other things as we move along here. But I think it hits on all of those elements. So if you took away any one element, as as much as it would still be a really good movie, it would lose something that you that would make you sad. <laughs> you know, it would just it would, you know because because we you know if we have it this good, you don't want them taking anything away. John Wayne's pretty cool at this. Um, what what still stuck out for me is I think today I'm so used to the fact that you you don't show smoking to this level in film. My gosh, was he throwing away cigarettes something fierce in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it stood out for me in this watch through, I think, just because we're in it, I love watching films from different eras because you get to see just how things were different. And, and none of this is a criticism. It was just more of like, wow, that's a defining a different sort of era where that was something just done so freely in film. Um well, again, in a way, it was a different era, as you said. This was yep. filmed, you know, it came out in 1952. The story is actually supposed to take place in the early 1920s. So I don't even think there was an awareness that cigarette smoking was bad for you. Right, right. And I'm I'm actually looking at a, a still right now of him sitting, that we sitting on that initial bridge and looking over the land mm-hmm. and just the, 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 the look on John Wayne's face it's a lot of times when we see John Wayne nowadays parodied, you know, it's some of the, it's kind of like what they do with William Shatner, where they emphasize kind of the, the posture and overacting sequences and things like that. There were moments in this, wow, where he just really captured emotional chords that um, were breathtaking and, and his ability to like look over the land and just, you believed in that moment. This is where this guy grew up. This is—he loves this place. I think John Wayne's acting ability is underrated very often. I—I uh, I, I think, and I, I think you hit on exactly the reason. I think there's parodies of him, and he was easy to parody because of his voice and because of his larger-than-life presence. But he did a lot. If you watch his movies closely, he did a lot with body language that probably flew under the radar for many people. You know, I talked earlier about how in film class they showed me things that I didn't really appreciate until they were pointed out to me uh, on on a conscious level, but probably appreciated subliminally. And I think that's what happens with some of John Wayne's acting. I think people don't notice that he's doing these subtle things just about how he moves his body, how he holds his arms, how he looks down, looks up, you know, does whatever he's doing i think there's a lot of acting cues that he has in there that people take for granted 
I think he was a much better actor than people give him credit for being. The sequence with him and, and, and Barry Fitzgerald, Nicolino Flynn, where they're reconnecting, you believed in that moment that these are two people that have such a fineness from their history with each other that they genuinely love each other. I mean, that there is like a, almost a familial relationship because of, of a shared history, which you get often from people who have grown up together in a land, you know, in a place together. And they can connect through that history because they share something that nobody else can share with them because they weren't there. And they made me believe it in those moments. It, it's And it's when you see him later with Father Lonegren, uh, it's it's a different sort of interaction. And, I, and it needs to be. And I loved the duality of him being able to interact with multiple people and yet have a relationship that felt very organic and very real to who these people were and what their role would be in his life. Or, you know, this is a first meeting and kind, professional, gentlemanly, but not the fondness that he had with Michelino Flynn. I mean, he sold me completely on the fact that these relationships are drastically different. Right, right. Very true. Now, I, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't bring up something. Uh, not that long ago, we, we reviewed the uh, Gone with the Wind. And we talked about, you know, what is effectively misogyny in that movie, where Clark Gable, uh, you know, basically commits marital rape in that movie. And it all gets kind of glossed over because of the times and all of that. And, you know, we, we, we were talking about how, you know, how terrible that really is. But that you got to put it in perspective of what they were trying to say, and you know it doesn't make it any any better. In this movie, they had a scene where it could have had a similar cringeworthy aspect to it, uh, because she's so distraught over the fact that her fortune hasn't come with her that she doesn't feel worthy of being in a marital relationship. So she's saying, "I'll cook for you, I'll clean for you, I'll give you your, you know your meals and, and take care of you, but we're not really married until I'm here a hundred percent." And she locks him out, and he comes over. He just kicks the door open and he grabs her, and you think he, it's going to be one of those John Wayne moments. And he picks her up, he throws her on the bed, and he goes out and sleeps in, in the, uh, I guess, living room. So he does. He at no point forces himself on her in any way, even though she's his wife at that point. And, you know, again, a different era, they could have presented it, you know, in, a, in what we would now view as being a very negative way, but they didn't. His character clearly loved Mary-Kate, but he was not going to do anything unless they did it together. They had to be truly a couple. And I really like the fact that, that this movie kind of fixed what I saw as a problem in, the, in, in one, what is considered one of the greatest movies of all time this movie fixed it in the way that it handled it. There were two scenes that were a little uncomfortable for me with this watch. That was one of them. And when he was dragging her through the field, which I don't want to jump too far ahead with that piece, but that similarly had a, a part to me that I didn't remember feeling that before. And it just shows how I'm like, I'm maybe evolving as I'm growing older. Mm -hmm. uh, in no way, shape or form did it ruin the film for me. I think what works in this film 
I, I looked at it with a critical eye, I should say. And, like, he shouldn't have been doing that. I mean, and I think that's something where it's okay to do that. It doesn't have to wreck the film for you. But it's okay to be critical of that because, again, we're looking at what was a portrayal of a different era. So I think there's a certain part of that that's right. I think what this film did well, and I think I'm agreeing, and I think I know I'm agreeing with you on the fact that I think she is a strong character. And you get that that he respects her strength and loves her for the fact that she's not afraid to throw a punch. <laughs> oh, no. And throw a smack. And I think he likes that about her, that he stands up, that she stands up to him. And I think that's where, why do I give it, I don't want to say a pass, I can still be critical of those moments, but I like the fact that he is not trying to keep her from her chutzpah, her ability to like, you know, get feisty and all of those things. He, he is drawn to that. He likes her strength. He wants, he wants to get to know how to earn her respect. And I think the fact that some of this comes out of frustration over cultural differences, you know, where he doesn't understand her culture. He's making mistakes because of it throughout, because he's insulting her. And in many ways, without intending on it, he's spitting on her culture. And to a certain extent, she's not recognizing the great compliments that he's giving her in his approach. Because from his cultural standpoint, he's like, well, this is what a gentleman does. I don't care about her money. I care about her. And I love that that is such an important part of this movie. And I think it is why you can look at those sequences and go, well, that's not their whole story. We understand more of their relationship than just those two moments where we're like, as friends, we want to pull them inside and go, John, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> as, as friends, we want to, I want to pull them aside. And I found myself in this rewatch. I want to pull them aside, each of them, and say, just tell the other one why you feel the way you do. Yes. Tell her why you won't fight. Explain to her why that you have this tremendous guilt. And explain to him how this culturally takes away from your personal value. And, and you come to a meeting of the minds, which they eventually did. But they never show that conversation. And to me, it's, it's a staple of a romantic comedy, which is really what this is at its core. Uh, that there's, you know, there's, got, there's always got to be some miscommunication. And that's the miscommunication in this movie. But eventually they come to the total meeting of the minds because he stands up for her. He gets her money. And then they take it and throw it into the fire to show that the money doesn't mean anything to them. It was the principle of the thing. What's important is what you're touching on here. It's a comedy. But... At no point in time do these characters feel slapstick or do they lose realism. They feel like real, well-rounded people. And the events that happen to them are funny because of the fact that they feel realistic. It's, it never loses its, it's steeped in reality and comfortable reality. It doesn't have to be too serious. But you've got a story that is serious here, especially when you take a look at we we referenced the sequence that we both are kind of like, I don't know that it was the best sequence in the film with the fight, but it sets a tone for a very seriously driven story about his background and why he's avoiding these things. And it, it keeps this sense of these are three-dimensional, real, living, breathing people who can be funny, who can cry, who can get angry and frustrated and all of these things and never lose never lose your interest and never lose your protectiveness. I think I'm more endeared with these characters because I see them as realistic. Um, they're not forced to avoid 
being human. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of non sequitur us over to something just because I just remembered something that I wanted to mention, and I'm afraid I'm going to forget to mention it if I don't mention it now. When he finally has the final battle with, with uh, Victor McLaughlin, Will Danner, uh, and he gets punched and he gets up and he starts coming back towards him. Watch his, if you get a chance to see it again, watch his body language as he starts walking towards him. It is exactly the way Sylvester Stallone did Rocky in the first movie as he would come, you know, come towards Apollo Creed. And I can't imagine, it's the first time I noticed it when I watched it for today, uh, but I can't imagine that Sylvester Stallone wasn't actually doing a John Wayne imitation in that moment. And if anybody knows the scene I'm talking about or, or watches it after we talked about this, look closely at that and tell me if I'm wrong or not. I really had I would, to, like I said, I, I had to get that out before I forgot it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I would not be shocked if this wasn't um, one of the films um, or, or at least films that were influenced by this were somehow what Sylvester Stallone drew off of because that fight sequence, even like his passion for fighting that becomes really apparent during that final fight sequence, because you get this idea that he's happy. <laughs> he's the back fighting again. It's, I mean, it's it was, like it set him free. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, you get that idea that like, okay, this is part of who this guy is. I mean, it was so much a part of his life that he has this moment where he's fighting and it does show his respect for, um, Will Danaher, the fact that he knows that this is somebody I can go toe-to-toe with and really go toe-to-toe with him. You get why these two have in the fight, uh, like, how can a fight lead to understanding? You kind of get it by watching this fight. It's one of the better fight sequences in a film um, in the way that it's portrayed. And, and they develop a respect for each other throughout it, and then when, you know, and they, their conversation actually goes there. And that leads me to this movie is so eminently quotable. There are so many lines in this movie that I've used uh, just in everyday life that I find the moment where I use them. One of my favorite is, write his name now, down. Now strike a line through it. <laughs> and it's, it just seems so silly, but I've used that one a million times. Uh, when he, when, when they, and what made me think of it just now when you said that is when they finally stop to, to uh, express their respect for each other, it, it, Victor McLaughlin says to him, your wife, wait, no, he says, uh, my sister, your widow, uh, she, she, she could have done worse. But just when he throws in your widow, like, you know, that, in other words, I'm going to kill you in this fight. <laughs> I just love little lines like that. Uh, what's his name? Michelino Flynn is just, almost everything he says is gold. Oh, I could watch, like, a spinoff movie of him. Like, you could put him in other movies as this character, and I would watch him like instantly guide people around places <laughs> I love when he's, he's talking to the other guys yes he's he's a millionaire you know like all the yanks but eccentric oh so eccentric <laughs> just just did the misconception that all all people from america are millionaires his, it's funny you're mentioning his uh when he did that line about you know write his name down and strike it through it his sidekick that was doing that. I loved watching his changing relationship because you get why Danaher comes off as this powerful, imposing presence and he's got money and he's been successful and he's worked hard to get there. So you could get why people would 
work for him and follow him and and believe like, you know, hey, I want to get to a point where I'm as together as he is. But then they start to see the chinks in his armor as the movie goes on and their relationship kind of organically changes, too. And I really liked how that played out, that you got to see that not that they, you know, totally tossed him, uh, you know, that relationship away, but it was more that, okay, I'm kind of seeing here that, you know, at times he can be a jerk. <laughs> and okay. I loved like that these characters don't, they have like a story arc, all of them. The sub characters that are there have a story arc too. And that's where it feels very real world. Cause there's I'm, little mini stories going on throughout it. I'm just looking the, the guy who plays his sidekick, uh, who's Ignatius Feeney is the character. The mm-hmm. actor is Jack McG- Jack McGowan, uh, and I, I I'm just a little surprised because I, I just you know put the mouse over his name on on Wikipedia, it says best known for his or his no excuse me it's not not best known for his work with Samuel Beckett his last film role and this is the one that surprised me was as the alcoholic director Burke Dennings in the movie The Exorcist. Do you remember that character? Oh oh, oh yes I had oh wow. Yeah, well, I had no clue that that was the same guy. I had no idea it was him. And and I love, like you said, the turn of the character. You know, he's he's following around. He he reminds me of uh, LeFou from uh, Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then when the fight goes, he goes over to put some money on on Sean Thornton, <laughs> and uh, Michaeline's like, "Oh, you traitor!" <laughs> the old man in the bar. That uh, they, they're giving him the last rights, but he gets up to watch the fight. <laughs> yeah, but he, the, uh, he was great all the way through because I mean, even the first meeting with Sean Thornton, where they're all kind of blowing him off, like he walks into this bar and they're like, uh, "Who's this guy?" And 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 basically, no, he's an outsider until the old man starts like grilling him, and then when he starts realizing who he is and that he's got a background and that he's going to buy everybody a drink and he's one of them. Everyone's cozy back up to the bar like he has been there all along. I thought it was like such a great sequence that just shows the difference between being a member of or being a a part of this Innisfree family and being a resident and being being truly a tourist. Uh, This is not a town you want to go to if you are a tourist (laughs) because they're not going to treat you like they want you hanging out. They want to keep their way of life and preserve it. Yeah, and that you know, somewhat. What while they, they'll talk to you, they wouldn't open up to you, and right. uh, you know, they they they're you know until they th- you know they realize he's one of their own, then then all of a sudden you know they they're very welcoming of, and it's just you know the, again to me the the script is just so well written as far as the lines, uh, so you know I remember your your uh, your, your grandfather old, you know old Sean Thornton, he died in a penal colony in in uh, Australia. And your father, he was a good man, too. You know, there's just so many little lines like that that just stay with me when I'm watching it. You know, he died in a penal colony. <laughs> colony means he was arrested and sent to a penal colony. Probably, my guess would be, for defending Ireland. But just the same, you know, there's just so much depth there. And, and just humor on top of it, too. Speaking of humor, the sleeping bag sequence was so funny because, the, you know, again, showing cultural differences. He's got a baggy sleep bed, a sleeping bag, they call it. And they're fascinated. They want to take this thing apart to get a look at it. I mean, little side things that happen in this 
because there's this big overarching story with these characters and, and romance and not not just John because by the end you're not just rooted, root, uh, rooting for John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara's characters to get together you actually want to see Squire Danaher and the widow Tulane get together like I actually was at the end rooting for I'm like I want him happy too I really do I like this guy at this point even though like I wanted to see him punched <laughs> I um, I really did want to see him have a, a positive ending as well so there were arcs that were really important I think sometimes films stay very flat in the sense and there's nothing wrong with that where you're focused on a couple of characters and their foreground story is all that's important to you. This film did a really good job of making me care about all of the backstories that were going on. I wanted to see what happened to everybody. I wanted to see all of their conclusions and where they were at at the end of this. And I did love seeing the old man get out of the bed for the same reason you're mentioning, because by that time, I'm like, I'm so invested in this guy. You can't kill him off. He's got to get up. <laughs> yeah, But the, the scene you mentioned when the, the sub plot that you mentioned about Danaher and, and the widow Tulane, I thought that was extremely well played. First of all, you don't even feel that it's developing, but it is. So that mm-hmm. makes it, you know, just to have a subtlety to it. You just think it's throwaway lines uh, as it's going on because he's, you know, it, it, they make it seem like he's out for her for her money and nothing more. Uh, and then they use her as a uh, device to get him to give permission for his sister to go with, with Thornton. But then as it goes on, while she's outraged by his behavior, you start realizing from little things that she does that she actually really does care for him. And then at the end, after, you know, Thornton is, is and Mary-Kate are happy together, Sean and Mary-Kate, then, we you, you know, it closes out with you seeing that him and the widow Tulane or, you know, the, Danaher and widow Tulane are going out on a date, you know, with... with uh, Michelino Flynn as the matchmaker so that they've finally gotten together. And I agree with you that, that you feel good about it, but you also feel good about the relationship between Danaher and Thornton, because Mm -hmm. as I said, you know, there's a scene in the bar where they start expressing their mutual respect for each other. And then rather than continue the fight, which is what they say they're going to do, they just sit there drinking and they both tie a load on. And then they come back to the house where Mary-Kate has prepared dinner for them, and she's clearly absolutely thrilled to see that her brother and her husband are now friend with, friends with each other. <laughs> but then there's even... What does he do? He spits on the floor or something, she yells at me. It's like, sorry, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> like, she, you know, you talked about her inner toughness, that she can cow him just the same, even though, you know, he's, he's a burly, tough man. One of the things I really liked about John Wayne in this was the the fact that even though Danaher was clearly doing everything he could to get in his way, John Wayne was trying to make peace. He kept over and over again trying to be the the bigger man, trying to be the gentleman. And not in a way where it was like cowering from weakness. He was genuinely like, oh, you know what, I'd like to get along with this guy. I'd like to make this right. You know, it's he wasn't trying to take the land to to screw over or hurt Dan or her or anything like that. It was because it was an ancestral home. So, you know, it's like, hey, listen, uh, we can be friends here. You're going to be my neighbor because of this. There's no reason why we can't get along and can't coexist. I, you know, he he's came here to get away from conflict and he keeps trying to make that peace. 
which a lot of people wouldn't do. And I felt it was it did not come across as anything less than organic uh, in what he was trying to do, because sometimes you can force that, too. And I felt like the script did a really nice job of showing that's inherent in his character where he's he's at peace and trying to be this gentleman that really at his core he's always been. And it was something that I think is really critical because if you don't buy into it, if it seems like it's fake, you don't care about Sean Thornton. And by the end of it, I really feel like I know you mentioned earlier a code and, and ways of um, the the difference that he and Maureen O'Hara were having in the beginning were the, you know, some cultural differences and background beliefs. And you get to know his belief system in a way where you get the attraction between the two. Even though they have differences, you see how their beliefs are so strong that you can see why these two would be a magnet for each other because it's okay that their beliefs are different, but there's something about yours that are drawing me to you. I want to know more about who you are, and I want to figure out a way to not lose myself, but be a part of your world, be a part of who you are. And it's really critical that we feel that, and it's, it's pretty rich in this. I think I think you hit on a good point too about uh, the relationship between Thornton and Danaher. You know, we we talked earlier about how the townspeople, once they realized he was one of their own, they accepted him, and that he became part of the community with them. Danaher was not part of that conversation. In fact, he clearly was making an effort to not be a part of it. Uh, so he viewed Thornton uh, up until. I guess up until the, they have the fight, he viewed him as an outsider who was trying to usurp him and maybe an opportunist. And John and, and Thornton is trying to, to make peace, but Danaher doesn't want to hear it. And I, I think that goes towards a lot of what we were talking about earlier, about how these are fleshed out characters. It's not, okay, one person accepts him, so they all do. He's used to being a type A personality. He's, he's not a follower. He's a leader, Danaher. So he's not going to let them tell him that Thornton belongs and that he's part of the community. Thornton has to show him, and eventually he does. But it, you know, it it takes a real effort for him to do that. So I, I think it's another thing that just makes this script so rich in the way that it comes together. I think we would be. I'm sorry, you, I don't mean to cut you off. Did you, did you have a point on that? Yeah. No, I, I was more looking um, and thinking about. Something and I wanted to make sure to mention it before, um, you know, we, we skipped over it because the cottage is something we haven't really talked about. And Quite a morn. Yeah, one of the things that I really loved about the cottage is when you first see it, it's really in bad shape. I mean, not like you know falling down or anything, but it's clear that nobody's been living there and things haven't been maintained and um, things haven't been painted and, and all of those pieces. I think it was really critical to establish that because you got to show that, like, this is something that most people would be like, okay, why? Why does he care about this place? And it goes back to that there's childhood feelings there. When she's cleaning up the place, there's got to be something to really clean up. <laughs> and it's clear that she was walking into a place that needed some TLC. So what mm -hmm. she's doing was really really recognizing that this guy bought this place and he has no idea what he's in for i'm gonna go there and do this nice thing and it added a lot more weight to it uh because when you see him later doing work on the land 
and painting and, and growing you know, plants and things to make the place more beautiful and more homey, you recognize that the significant amount of work came into that transformation and that it gives you this feeling of why he cares and that he and why they would actually accept him too. He wants to be part of the community. He wants his home to represent and be a part of the culture there. It, it was really cool. I, I, and that cottage is something that was, it could have been a throwaway. They didn't have to spend as much time on it. I love that they did. I think, uh, you know, you hit on something there, too, about how this cottage represents both Sean and Mary Kate's dreams, their mm-hmm. fantasies of what life is going to be like. You know, he, he has this fantasy in his in his mind about going back to the cottage where he was born and, you know, restoring it, turning it back into what it was, which he pretty much does. She has this fantasy about all of her belongings being there. You know, she comes in there, she's like, oh, and that's where I'm going to put this chair, and that's where I'm going to put this, and that's where I'm going to put that. She has this, you know, it's it's something she's grown up, clearly, these are my things, and this is the way I'm going to live my life. You know, it's something that she's always strived for, and something he's always strived for, and that ultimately when they manage to do that, they've brought their fantasy to life. And, you know, once again, it's just another thing that just adds a layer to this movie uh, that doesn't necessarily jump out at you. But when you start, you know, peeling away at the layers, you see that this is all there. Uh, And I think that's what makes this as good of a movie as it is, is that it's not just all surface. There's a lot of very funny lines that they throw out there as it's going along. But there's so much more going on than just the funny lines. It's funny, when she became part of the home, when they first got married, the home started to evolve even further, felt more like a home. And when her stuff was finally there, because it was still felt like it was missing things, like it was a little empty. And when her stuff came in, it was like the final pieces that like it's like her bringing herself and completely being a part of the home um, really finished off the place and made it really quaint. <laughs> it was a yeah. nice, like you could see, like I want to go over there and hang out at their house and having company come over um, became a thing where you're like, I can get why people would want to come over there and hang out and have dinner. Cause it's just a nice, comfortable place from this empty disheveled place that it was very early on in the beginning. It had a, it undergoes its own transformation like the cast does. Definitely. I totally agree with you. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't hit on the score of the film for a moment. Uh, there's a lot of little you know, music in the background. There's a lot of uh, very obvious Irish tunes, Wild Colonial Boy, things like that. that are they're, they're played to great effect during the movie, and they're very catchy as they go through them. But there's just an overall... So music that goes throughout it, and you know it's and it's repeated over and over again, uh, and it's at different paces at different times. It's different instruments at different times, and even Michelino Flynn, when he's just sitting there by himself, he's humming that tune. And I just think it's 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 just very very catchy throughout. And then when I look at the Wikipedia page, it says when Maureen O'Hara died in October 2015, her family stated that she listened to the music from The Quiet Man during her final hours. Filmmaker George A. Romero also, was also said to have died listening to the score, which I just find fascinating. But it's just it, it is a very catchy music as it's going on, and it does exactly what 
I say the music should do. It never overpowers the film, but it emphasizes certain things. If you're not paying attention to it, you might not even really notice it all that much, but it creates a mood throughout, and I think it's just another thing in this movie that just adds to the, you know, to the sum of its parts. My father had the album, um, the record album, uh, when I was growing up, and I didn't realize it until I had actually seen the film in 89, and it was during an era where we had, you know, been starting to get past record players. So I, at the time, I was like, well, this is really cool that we have this, but don't, you know, really have a, don't play records as much anymore. But I did, this time around, in listening to it for this, I ended up going, I enjoyed the soundtrack so much as I was watching this again, I ended up going on iTunes and buying it. <laughs> um, I like the music so much from this. It really is. I'm glad you referenced that because I like the music so much from it. I'm like, this is a score I want to own. I really enjoyed the music in this. Yeah, I, I like. I, I just can't give enough superlatives. I think you know anybody knows how I'm going to rate this movie at this point already. <laughs> but but uh, there's just so many positives to this thing, and it's just an absolute pleasure to watch. It had a running time of slightly over two hours, I believe. I'm looking for that now. Uh, why does it not have that listed here? Well, oh, there is 129 minutes. So it was nine minutes over two hours, which was out of the ordinary in that era for something that wasn't an epic. And this, as as much as I love this movie, I wouldn't call it an epic because those are the sprawling, you know, uh, Ben-Hur type movies, the Ten Commandments, you know, biblical epics, that kind of thing. Uh for for just you know a, a romantic comedy, 129 minutes was uncommonly long, and apparently the studio wanted Ford to cut it down, and Ford's response was, "You watch the movie and tell me what to cut out," and they did, and they said, "We don't want you to cut anything out." Well, here's the beauty of this. I think you and I agree with them, because. In the end, the only sequence where we may have some criticism of was probably that nine minutes. <laughs> I mean, the the sequence that we're talking about with that that fight flashback. I think what maybe maybe it was a ten minute sequence. Oh, I doubt it was even close to that long. Honestly, yeah. I bet you were only looking at a couple of minutes there. Right, right. But I mean, it, maybe it seems longer to me because of the fact that out of the whole film, it was my least favorite sequence. But even then, I mean, it's more of finding something in a film that. I just adore. Um, that, and I, and I think that one scene might have been done slightly more elegantly, and that would have made us happy. But yeah. I do think it is important to have that scene to show his motivations anyway, so I still wouldn't have cut it out. No, and I, the one thing I will say, if I would compliment that scene about one thing, I liked that it felt like it was shot differently. It was grittier. It... Um, it was more grounded in, like, it felt like dirty, the ring was dirty, it didn't feel at all connected with the rest of the film, and I know that's kind of a weird thing to say when you're watching a movie like this, like, why would you want it disconnected? Because it really it needed to feel like it was in a different place, in a different part of his life, and it did accomplish that. Um, if there, that That's one compliment I would give from it, because it needs to feel like something that he's walking away from, and er, like something that feels wrong and i think the flashback does accomplish that feeling of 
this is not it's not a good memory it's not something there's nothing remotely about any of it that you would it, it's uncomfortable <laughs> I, mean, I totally agree i totally agree i think you know the whole point is that he was leaving that life to go to what he you know viewed as paradise uh and you know it turns out that he was accurate which is in and of itself you know different from most movies most movies that people go to see paradise and they find out it's not what they thought it would be uh but in this instance ireland is filmed in a way where it's bright it's colorful it's beautiful you don't want what he's leaving to look that way so it's dark it's gritty it's dirty looking and i think that's effective you know there's there's a sequence that um is just making me chuckle right now as i'm thinking about it, it was the first time michelino flynn talked to maureen o'hara about uh, Sean's intentions for her, you know, that he was interested and she's clearly incredibly interested in hoping that that's what he's there for. And he references for the first time that he, uh, you know, doesn't care about her stuff. He, you know, just would be happy taking her. And, and really all he was saying there is I value you and nothing material is important to me it's you and it's where he doesn't understand the cultural importance of those things to her but she does in that moment i loved the acting on this because at first she is like swooning from that but then the reality comes in of what's important to her culturally and i felt that was a natural reaction where she was booming bleeming you know the, you can see the smile on her face mm-hmm. and I thought that was really organic and the great acting from Marina Hara in that because I felt it was genuine. Like, wow, what a, you know, this man is falling for me and I'm falling for him and it's great. But wait a minute. He doesn't get it. Like, this stuff is really important to me. It's part of who I am and it's part of what people value here. And there is status is a really important part of the culture here. Um, you see that in the relationship you mentioned earlier, Will Danaher and um, the widow Tulane, where Danaher is, I feel he really respects the widow and respects the fact that if the two of them got married, it would be great for both of them. And he respects what she brings to the table and, and is drawn to her because of respect as well and i think you get there in that journey seeing that that's what it was because you're right you don't get the relationship at first but gradually as it's unfolding you're getting well that respect is important in this culture so the fact that he feels this way and that's where jealousy comes from later on because he really does love and respect her it stands out i think it's critical in contrast to this sequence where john wayne as from our cultural standpoint is being noble and being gentlemanly, but it's, it's weakness in this culture. And I loved how that just all played out. It just was, it was such a great sequence and framed by the great acting of Maureen O'Hara, because I, it's easy to talk about John Wayne because he did such an amazing job, but equally important to this one is the role of Maureen O'Hara, who I just think was able to showcase a strength um, while at the same time um, showcasing an amazing femininity that never took away from how strong she was, and also being able to show at times sadness and um, and humor, and she goes the full gamut of emotions as well. 
and really is this complex character that by the end you're like, what a powerful woman in an era where we talked about some dis- uncomfortable scenes where we're like, uh, from today's standards, she never loses that sense of strength, um, which is pretty important, I think, to the character because she, for this era, really is an incredibly strong female for this uh, in, in when you're framing up this time frame. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that as well. I think her character... She has a story arc or a character arc throughout this where she, you know, when it starts off, she doesn't even talk. She she just kind of does what she's going to do and then makes her, you know, goes on her way. And you think that, you know, she's very shy, but you realize she just kind of in that society, in that era, she knew where her place was and didn't want to overstep. But she never, there's never a scene where you don't feel the strength of her character. She, you know, and, and I think as it goes on, she comes out of that shell and she, you know, you, you see more and more of her personality when, when they finally go on the date and then the two of them uh, run off and, and you just see the, the joy on her face and everything. Uh, and, and then, you know, when she stands up to John Wayne and when she stands up to, to Victor McLaughlin, you know, she's not afraid of anybody. So she, she's a very strong character. But, you know, the, the personality and everything comes out as it goes on. And I never thought I would actually mention the movie Rocky twice during this review but in in its own way it reminds me of the character arc of adrian in that movie where she starts off you know so incredibly shy and and everything but she still does have that inner strength and then it just comes out as the movie goes on uh that's the closest i could come to a uh, a comp on it uh the the difference being you know mary kate is never as uh as as introverted as as Talia Shire was in the, in that particular movie, but that's I, you know it, it's a character arc that I think plays very very well in this movie, and I think it would have been very easy for a lesser actress to get lost in the person in in the in the bigger than life personalities of John Wayne and, and Victor McLaughlin, and she doesn't. I think. One of the pieces that you're, I think, where the Rocky, it's funny, you referenced Rocky twice, but I, I'm just nodding, because I've never really connected the two films until you were referencing it on this, and, and man... <laughs> Neither did I, by the way. <laughs> but, man, but man, do I see the connections, because one of the things that I think they do have in common is, in both cases, you've got to believe in that relationship and believe there's genuine love to see them through some of the adversity they go through in the film. Like, Because if you don't believe that, you got to be like, okay... Why would she still be in love with him after he drags her through a field? I mean, you know, why would why would these things matter? Um, you've got to believe that there's enough framing this film. It's also why I think the length of the film is pretty critical, because you needed to develop these characters a lot in order to get to that point where some of these sequences where you and I are like, ooh, um, you kind of go, well, here's why it worked. And it only works if there is enough film in between that that you can sit there and go, okay, she deserves to throw a punch in him, but and and she's right to do it. But you got to believe that like you're still rooting for her to stay with him and him to stay with her, and for them to evolve as a couple and finally get past all of this and be the couple that they really want to be instead of having all of this tension. That and frustration that has gotten in the way of their relationship. So it was it was a cool bit. The their courting 
we we didn't talk about that, and I think it's pretty important. When they were courting and they got on that, um, Michalino Flynn's keeping them on two opposite sides, and there really is this awkward back to back where they don't have a chance to talk or touch or and and with him chaperoning them, how is there? And seeing them become teenagers again in that moment where they they get off at one point in time and they see the bike as they're walking, and he goes to her, he goes can you ride a bike? And she says, yes. And they both just like in unison recognize we need to have a moment together. We need to get away from him. And and this, this, there needs to be this thing between us that is ours, that we've taken control now of our relationship in this moment. Those sequences were pretty critical to having understanding, I think for why they got through the other sequences. Um, Because you've got to, you've got to believe that there's, enough chemistry that they really are in love with each other and falling in love hard pretty quickly. Once again, I, I agree totally. I think I, it bears looking at the sequence when he drags her uh, over there. And I think the first premise you have to be able to go with in that is that all of the violence in this movie is really, you know, what I would call cartoon violence. Uh, no, nobody's ever getting really hurt by anything that goes on. I mean, John, uh, Sean Thornton and, and uh, Will Danaher have a knockdown dragout fight where they're beating the tar out of each other. Uh, you know, the, at, at a minimum, one of them would have a concussion, uh, you know, the, the broken bones, the, all sorts of things. But when all is said and done, you know, other than a, a little bruising, they're both fine because the violence is cartoon. It's not real violence. So I have to start with the premise that when he's dragging her along like that, he's never really hurting her. And, and that, if, if I can go with that, you know, as, as part of it, he's really doing there, and, and this is going to sound terrible when I first say it, so I have to be careful and explain it. He's really doing there what she wants him to do. And that isn't, oh, you know, she wanted to get dragged. She wanted him to stand up to Will Danaher. She wanted him to, to show the backbone and say, this is what you have to do, and we're not going to put up with your crap, basically. And what he did was he brought her over there that way, and he tossed her back to him and said, if you don't give her her fortune, we're not married, the deal is off, end of story. That's what she wanted him to do, because she needed him to show Will Danaher he wasn't going to take it anymore. And that's what makes Will Danaher come out and give the money to him. And then he and Mary Kay take it and throw it into the fire because now they finally reached a place together where they want to be. He did what she wanted to do and she did what he wanted to do. He, you know, he, he stood up to her brother and she showed him that she really didn't care about the money. It was all just the principle of the thing. So I think, was, I think it's an important sequence for that reason. And it is. And it's also it's important to frame that up with the fact that they finally had her furniture at this point and she left him. Because of the 350, uh, I think it was. I think that was the dollar amount, or not dollar amount. It was, you know, in their in their currency. But um, it, it wasn't about the money. It was about principle. And she was leaving him. She was on a train leaving him, and that made him snap. He's like, I'm losing my wife over this. And you know, he finally got to this point where it's like, enough's enough. If this is what you want, fine. I, I'm gonna let, drag you all the way back and. You want this fight? This is what we're going to get. <laughs> I mean, well, it, like, it gets relayed to him. I don't remember who tells him, whether it's Michalino Flynn or I don't think, I think it was somebody else who said, she said to me, she loves him too much and she can't be with him if he's going to be, you know, if he's, if he's not going to be able to, 
you know, she if, she, if basically like if she's gonna, if he's going to be an embarrassment to her because right. she loves him and she can't see him cowed by Will Danaher. It was it, it's and you're right, Cart. I, it's really important to your point that you have to under that this is it's meant to be cartoony in its presentation. And I loved that even during the dragging sequence, she still got her hoots, but she got up, she throws a swing at him. I mean, it was it was great to see those sequences where she never stops fighting the whole way either. And one one of the village people gives him a stick to beat her with. <laughs> and again, there's so many little lines like that. Lady, that was great. Just I, I can come up with so many lines. Uh, what, one of the ones I know one of my friends used to use all the time is when uh, they're, they're describing Mary Kate and somebody says that red hair is no lie. <laughs> so mean, meaning her 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 fiery personality. I did love when she went back home, like because when the money was thrown in there, it was like I got my way, I won. I mean, there was a strength to the way that she left. Um, I think there was a pretty important distinction there. That, you know, she she goes home and says, yeah, I'll have the dinner waiting and all that kind of thing when you get home um, because she got what she wanted. And I think it's really important. And it, I, you, you mentioned earlier, like, why are we letting some of this stuff? You mentioned the contrast to Gone with the Wind as far as comfort level. Um, I'm I still I cringed at a couple of those sequences. Sure. But. Why do you sit there and go, why do we still love these characters? It's because you can put it in an era. And at the end, I still felt she was strong because when she at the end, her demeanor completely changed. She walked back home with a confident strut because she got her way. <laughs> and, 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 and despite all, all the, you know, old world behavior, he never disrespects her. Right. Right. So that's, right. That, that's very important. It is yes. It, it's it was it's a critical film because um, you know we're we're dealing with a very different era where I don't know you couldn't get away with this today. I don't think in the same way. Nor I mean unless you're doing a film from an era and like really being clear that that's what you're doing. But this as a a action comedy drama. I mean, there's so much going on in this. Uh, it it's it's a pretty incredible piece. Just by way of trivia, I would also note that four of John Wayne's children, Patrick Wayne, Michael Wayne, Tony Wayne, and Melinda Wayne, are all, uh, they all have uncredited cameos at the uh, horse races. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, I, I'm looking at that too right now. I did not notice that before. That is really cool. And I would just make mention that a lot of these actors uh, – were part, you know, it, this this was done in an era when directors had their actors, and that doesn't mean they were exclusive. You know, John Wayne would work with other directors, Maureen O'Hara would work with other directors, but you saw over and over again people like John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Victor McLaughlin, Ward Bond, and and other people would work consistently with John Ford. You know, he, he would always seek them out. And you don't see that nearly as much nowadays because you don't have the powerhouse directors. But you do see Spielberg working with a lot of the same people all the time. You see Martin Scorsese working with a lot of the same people all the time. So it does happen. But I don't think I don't think the directors are as, you know, I don't, I don't think they're as well known as they were back then. So I, it, it's just, a, again, it's a different era. Uh 
And the yeah. chemistry of certain actors and actresses working together during that time um, was something that was really apparent. I'm a big fan of the Marx Brothers, and obviously over the years they had certain people that they continually worked with. And I think their films were better when you had people that, you know, who understood the comedy and being able to be sometimes to be the straight person in those films. It's the same thing in the John Ford films where you see certain people that are able to play off of each other because there's a comfort level. You get that they and they trust each other um, in in those sequences. And it becomes really, really apparent. Well, and, and I know it's a tangent, but since you mentioned it, uh, I was always under the impression that Margaret Dumont really didn't get the comedy of the Marx Brothers, and that she just read her lines and did what they told her to do. Uh, I don't know if that's actual reality or if that's apocryphal, but that's that's always the impression I had. Uh, and she was the perfect foil for Groucho Marx, just the same. Well, every film that she was in with them, I mean, she's in some ways she's an additional Marx Brother because you need that person to play off of, whether that was, to your point, unintentionally that way or intentionally I, my favorite films were the ones with her um, because of the fact that she like, it's so was so brilliantly Margaret Dumont. (laughs) Oh no, she was great. Yeah. No question about it. Okay. But back back to the quiet man, because I don't want to wander before we rate this. Is there anything that we missed that you think is a critical point or important point? The sequence with the hay. <laughs> I mean, there's I could go on and on about this film, but in during the battle, there's this sequence where they're fighting in this giant pile of hay, and it's it's chaos. Like it wasn't just the two of them fighting. Now all of a sudden, all the people in the town, which just gives you an idea of just how this town is. You know, people who had because people were coming out of pubs and following along with this. It's an example of how in the excitement. Everyone got involved. People were pushing into other people, and they started getting in the fight. Out of the hay, not only pops out John Wayne and Victor McLaughlin, but pretty much like a quarter of the cast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it turned into a giant barroom brawl. But one of the things I liked about that sequence is, I don't even remember who, who does it, but one of the characters says, no, no, no. This is a fight strictly between the two of them and everybody else. We're going to ask you to just hold off and, and not brawl. Uh, and that's when they, they do the Marcus of Queensberry rules uh, moment. I think it was uh, our Michelino, Michelino Flynn, because uh, he was the only one that wasn't in the hay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so many good moments. It really is just like from from the beginning to end. It's just very, very enjoyable. It so. is every time I watch it, it is like I'm watching it for the first time because I catch things that I didn't catch before. So uh, you're right; it, it's one of those films we could we could keep going on picking out certain sequences. Actually, if there's one more sequence I could talk about. Is uh, we talked about the Reverend before and how he was more of a bit character, it's really there for the purpose of that he knew who Sean Thornton was before. I love the idea that the town, even though they weren't the same religion as him, because he was Protestant, the town recognized that he was one of theirs. So they put on this show that they were actually part of his parish, including the priests there. They were like they were hiding their collars and they were helping the rally cry of, hey, we want this guy to stay here. And in order for him to stay here, when his bishops coming through town, 
We got to make it look like not only we're a part of his parish, but he is the greatest ever. (laughs) And and I love that the town came together for that because it was this by the end of the film, there was this sense of the conflicts now gone from Innisfree. Everyone's kind of winning and the town has come together. And again, they're protecting one of their own. I just love that the film ended with that kind of note. I think it's kind of, especially nowadays, um, it's kind of a good message of like, you know, just remembering that, hey, we can get past conflict. And when we do get past conflict, we got to remember that we might have differences and things like that. But, you know, at the end, let's all remember to come together and rally behind each other and support each other in spite of our differences. I, it is a cool ending in this film that has so many different emotions going on for it, including a great comedy. <laughs> Absolutely. There, there, there really are. There's a lot of just, like I said, it, it's, it just keeps going and going and every, it, it, right up until the end. And it's something to, to stay with. Uh, there's no question. I, I don't think I could hide it for a second that I'm going to rate this as Jaws. Uh, but I'm going to throw everybody out a, a little homework assignment. If you are so inclined, uh, there is a documentary out there called John Ford Dreaming the Quiet Man. And it's it's pretty good. If, if you love this movie, it, it gives you a pretty good insight into the making of it and, and a lot of things that they did. Uh, and it is available on a free streaming, streaming service called Tubi, T-U-B-I. Uh, so if anyone's interested, that's something you can watch. If If you haven't seen this movie, I'm strongly recommending that you see it. If you have seen this movie and know how good it is, I'm recommending that you watch that documentary. It's available for free. I would also say, if you haven't seen the uh, movie in a while, um, it's a good one to rewatch with, like, fresh eyes. Because I do think as you give it some time and, like, step away from it and watch it um, as you've evolved, I think it does – I watched this in 89 for the first time. Watched it again uh, about a week ago in preparation for this, and boy, it watched different, and and I mean in a in a positive way. So I do recommend if you're like, oh, I've seen that before, and I wanted to listen to this because I've seen it again. Give it a watch now because it's worth it's worth seeing again. Agreed, agreed. So would I be correct that you're going to rank this as a Jaws? Uh, yeah, without hesitation. Um, and, and it's and it's funny we can say that with the fact that I, we're both critical of the really. Uh, I didn't expect us to talk about that so much, but we're both critical of the same sequence. But it's such a small part of the film, um, and I think in its own way a necessary part of the film. I think we just our preference would have been that it was handled slightly differently than it was. Um, other than that, my gosh, what a terrific watch all the way through. Absolutely, and I, 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 I think, uh, <laughs> I think because it's the only sequence you don't like, you've o- overestimated the length of it by quite a bit. I think that scene only goes on for maybe a couple of minutes, and and it's it's not it's not that it's even painful to watch. It just it's it doesn't have the level of joy that the rest of the movie does. Yeah, and it, it really does. I, I think you're right. I think it does feel longer than it is because of the fact that I think some of the areas where we're critical about it. Um, and that may be why we're critical, too, because there, this film, other than that, it cooks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Sean, I want to thank you for coming on. This is great. I'm glad we managed to get together again. And we already have plans. If anybody's enjoying Sean's presence on the show, we already have plans to get together in the very near future. So 
she, Sean's going to be back. Uh, but in the meanwhile, why don't you tell everybody where they could find you if they don't already know? Yeah, we do, we do a, a regular podcast called Raging Bullets. It's a DC Comics, Comics focused podcast. We do weekly episodes. Um, periodically, from time to time, we do what we call pop culture and whatnot episodes, where we do talk about um, their bonus episodes in between during the week, where we talk about comics outside of DC. Um, a lot of times, independent books and things like that. But RagingBullets.com is where you can find us. And, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say to you, thank you for the invite for this. I don't get the opportunity to talk about films unless they're obviously DC related on my own podcast. Um, and that's not a knock. I mean, I, I, we have, we have something that our podcast is about, but the opportunity to really talk about something like this is uh, something I didn't think I'd get a chance to do. And man, did I enjoy this. So thank you very much for the invite. Well, it's my absolute pleasure. And I really enjoyed it as well. And I, you know, as I often do with my guests, uh, usually I have guests from other podcasts because I enjoy their podcasts. So Sean, you know, Sean and I became friends for exactly that reason that I was listening to his podcast. I enjoyed it and we became friends. But I would strongly recommend anyone who has a love of DC Comics, you know, if you don't already subscribe to it, you should. Uh, Sean and, and his co-host Jim are both very knowledgeable and very two of the most upbeat guys I can imagine just very positive and just fun to listen to. So I, I, I appreciate the kind words. It's um, I've been very lucky over the years that we've done the podcasting that I feel like um, we've made some really good friends. And uh, this, obviously this recording is a great example of one of the friends that I really value out of this. So um, again, thanks a lot. Well, thanks for that. Don't make me cry. <laughs> That'll be, a, that'll, that'll be in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Well, then, <clears throat> now, I'll begin at the beginning. A fine, soft day in the spring it was when the train pulled into Castletown, three hours late as usual, and himself got off. He didn't have the look of an American tourist at all about him. Not a camera on him. And what was worse, Bye. not even a fishing rod. Castletown? Castletown? Could you tell me the way to Innisfree? Innisfree? Ah, oh, five miles or maybe a half more. Do you see that road over there? Yeah. Well, don't take that one. It'll do you no good. Now, the best road to Innisfree and many's the to walk Ah, walk it's Innisfree it. you want. Be saving yeah. your breath, Mr. Maloney. Let me direct the gentleman. Happen you know the way to Knockanore? Knockanore? If he knew the way to Knockanore, would he be asking the way to Innisfree and it just beyond? There's many knows Knockanore that doesn't know Innisfree. And if you'd take the time to study your country's history, Mr. Maloney, you'd be no. the first to admit it. Ah, no, don't be sent another poor man to knock a door. So the fishing is finished there entirely. Now tell me this, Yank, what is it you're after? Is it trout or salmon? All I want is to get to Innisfree. Ah, now you're talking sense. The best fishing in the country. Who are you there, Mr. Castellor? Trout. Trout as long as your arm. Mm -hmm. And right. salmon. The last one I got, I was expecting Jonah to pop out of his mouth. That's a fact. Ah, Innisfree. I'd be bringing you there myself. Only I, I've got to drive the train. Hey, 
Was he was he thinking about that truth I got two Sundays before last? Yeah, dear. Ah, oh, not at all, not at all. At Ballygar, over the other end of the country. My sister's third young one is living at Inish free, and she'd be only too happy for to show you the road. Oh, well, fine. Oh, no, no, if she was here. It's Inish free the man wants to go there. Do you see that signpost there with the long arm? Well, you know it's in front of us. I thought about that the long arm. Well, you know it's in front of us. I was coming to that. Well, I thought about that.